We're back in Isaiah 53 today, and we're looking at the subject of the servant's triumph. This is firstly indicated in verse 10, where the crucified servant is indicated by Isaiah that he will have offspring. Verse 10 starts out sad, but it ends up glad, if you read the text. In obedience, though Jesus was crushed by the Father, though he was caused to suffer as a guilt offering for his people, in the end, Isaiah writes, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Earlier we read in verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Now we do not normally think of Jesus as a man and in the um, normal sense of one who would eventually get married and have a wife and children and raise a family. But we notice here that Isaiah thinks of him in all of these ways, understanding better, I think, his humanity than perhaps we do. Isaiah firstly gives us the hard truth that there would be no children for him, no wife. Why? Because he would be cut off from the land of the living. What's that mean? Well, humanly speaking, his life would be snuffed out prematurely. This is why Isaiah asks the question, for which he already knows the answer, who can speak of his descendants? Answer, no one can speak of his descendants. He doesn't have any descendants. He was killed. His life was cut short. That's the bad truth. Now that is the human side of Isaiah's prophecy, and it's just as literally fulfilled as the spirit side. Jesus had no wife, no children, no family. We estimate that he was crucified long about age 33 years of age, just about the time when many people are beginning to raise their families. But just when it appeared that the servant would have no descendants whatsoever, Isaiah goes on to say in verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Oh, he will have offspring? Yes. And since this is a king that comes from Jesse's root, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 1, which we studied, it's important that there is a kingdom of people over which to rule. Naturally, we're not talking here of physical offspring through the normal means of procreation. But Christ will have a family nonetheless. He will have children. He will be the father of many. We study that in Isaiah 9, verse 6. He is called, one of his titles is Everlasting Father. And Isaiah says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I think this is uplifting. It was the Lord's will to crush the servant, first part of verse 10, but it's also the Lord's will that his servant will come through the torture, through the suffering, see better days, and those better days will mean a triumph over death and the grave, over the evil plots of men, 
and the ultimate purpose of God will prosper. And isn't it refreshing from our standpoint at least that God has an ultimate will for the servant Jesus that does not end in crucifixion and death. However, we, however grateful we are for the Father's plan to pierce his Son for our transgressions, to crush him for our iniquities, verse 5, could there be any real salvation for us if the plan of God ended there? Andrew Lloyd Webber in his opera, operetta, Jesus Christ Superstar, ends with Jesus on the cross. That's the best the world can come up with, with regard to Jesus. Acknowledging his birth, his life, and his death, but it ended there. The Bible says that the last enemy all of us face, the last enemy all of us face, is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. So let me ask this question. Could there be any salvation for us had Jesus not conquered this last enemy? How omnipotent could God be, could Jesus be, in his death had the, had, if death had, had the last say in his life? And in this ministry, oh, wonderful teaching, born disciples, wonderful uh, instructions, and so forth. Cross, end. Do not all inform, I say informed, do not all informed people fear death in the afterlife. Forget the jokesters who talk about having a good time in hell with their buddies. I said all informed people. You get your information from the God of hell. The God who created hell for punishment. And it's not a picnic. It's not a cakewalk. So do not all informed people fear death and the afterlife. The writer of Hebrews says that we do. And he goes on to say that this is one of the accomplishments of Christ's atoning work. Yes, a cross. But also victory over the grave. Here it is. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The writer of Hebrews is saying, all of humanity <clears throat> fears death. And even God's people, before we were God's people, feared death. And one of the works of Christ is, yes, the cross, but to deliver us from the fear of death. Notice, since the children have flesh and blood, the Lord came to save them from death and its fears. What children? His offspring. Verse 10 of Isaiah, our text, those offspring referred to by the prophet. Those who would believe in him and who by faith would be related to him spiritually, rescued from the grip, rescued from the angel of death, who is Satan. 
Now, the idea of spiritual children is not a foreign concept to life or to the New Testament teaching. When a pupil learns well from a professor in college and distinguishes himself in some field of expertise, let's say mathematics or chemistry or literature, something like that, it's not uncommon to think of that professor as the one who mentored that student and to credit him, the professor, with producing the expertise in that student. He taught him. The student has profited well from his connection with the professor. And in a real sense, he was fathered intellectually in those achievements. Well, we don't mean by fathering, in that use of the word, we don't mean that he was physically the father of the student. We mean that he was the father of his intellectual expertise. Well, in the spiritual realm, Paul said to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, but not in a proud way, that he, Paul, was their spiritual father. The Corinthians first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from Paul, the missionary. This is the way they came to forgiveness in Christ. This is how they experienced the grace and the salvation of God. And Isaiah is saying of Jesus that he too, he too has offspring. He becomes the spiritual father of the children for whom he died. Jesus has descendants. Now that brings us to the resurrection. We ask, how was this accomplished? How is the triumph of Jesus evident? Look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, after that's done, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Clearly, Isaiah foresees that whatever is to happen to Christ by way of his suffering, and he's told us a lot about that, this suffering was to end not in death, but in life. That is a clear reference to the resurrection. So when we come to the New Testament, it's also evident that Jesus fully comprehended that his death would be temporary at best. He anticipated coming forth from the grave in triumph over death, over hell, and over all his enemies and ours. Jesus' words to his disciples are, in a sense, short-term prophecies. He he gives them the whole story, not just part of the story. He includes statements about resurrection as well as about his death. Let me read some for you. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, yes, okay, and on the third day be raised to life. So see, he had it both. I'm going to be killed by these people, but that's not the end. 
Or Matthew 17, 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now he gives a time element attached to it. Death, yeah, but three days later, life. This is in Galilee. So his disciples are moving with him, you see. Matthew 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen. This is transfiguration. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't say it till I'm raised. Verse 23, same chapter, Matthew 17. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Why? He only got the first part of the message. That's why. They're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. Our, our master, our teacher, our savior, they're going to kill him. They didn't get the last part. Matthew 20, verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles, think Pilate and the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. And then there are two texts in Luke's gospel which are duplicates of what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew's gospel. So we have repeated again and again Jesus' knowledge that his death would not be the final chapter written about his life. The strange thing in all of this is that the disciples, having been taught more than seven times by Jesus himself about the resurrection, did not remember it until after Jesus was raised. John 2 verse 22 says, Then they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus had spoken. Ah. <laughs> but the religious leaders. In requesting a guard for the tomb. Said to Pilate. Sir. We remember that while he was still alive. That deceiver said. After three days. I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb. To be made secure. Until the third day. Day. Matthew 27, verse 63 and verse 64. You know, people of the world are sometimes sharper than the people of God. Then Jesus told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 25. Here it is. How foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We're reading a text, Isaiah 53, where the prophet has said a lot about the suffering of Christ. Verses and verses and verses. But he doesn't end there. He talks about the suffering servant seeing life. 
Well, sadly, this is often true, not only of the twelve, but also of us. We drag our feet in commitment at times because we lag behind in faith. Not believing, we don't act. And resurrection is one of those things that tries the faith of men because it's so unbelievable. Why is it unbelievable? Because we can't duplicate it in the laboratory. Thank you, Mr. Nye, Mr. Evolutionist, Mr. Naturalist, that doesn't believe in supernatural, doesn't believe in God. And because we can't duplicate the supernatural, the acts of God, our faith falters. It is unbelievable because we know of no one in our experience to whom this has happened. Even the alleged outer body experiences we sometimes read about in the news are a joke compared to any real notion of death followed by resurrection. When Jesus was mummified with burial claws and spices and laid in the cold dark tomb for three days, there was no illusion of him floating out of his body and then coming back into it. No, his spirit was gone. He was dead. He was lifeless. And any intelligent onlooker would have observed. The, the religious leaders never questioned that Jesus was dead. No, they knew he was dead. They feared that his disciples would steal his body from the tomb and claim that he was alive. They believed in his death. They did not believe in his resurrection. The lying theologians of our day disbelieve his death while trying to explain his resurrection. And so they talk of Jesus reviving in the cold tomb or his disciples supposedly uh, stealing him away, that has come down, and that he was de uh, dead. How absurd it is to believe in the miracle of resurrection than to believe a stupid theory like that. It's easier to believe in resurrection than that stupid theory. Oh, he was, he was in a swoon. That's the swoon theory, by the way. Oh, he was in a swoon. But the cold tomb revived him. Let me say something, that if the disciples didn't even remember Jesus' teaching on resurrection until after he was raised, it's ludicrous to think that they would have devised some human explanation for resurrection. They believed Jesus to be dead. And they were not anticipating his reappearance. That's why we are told, as we read earlier, they were overcome with grief. The death part they got. The resurrection part they missed. But Isaiah predicted and Jesus knew that after the suffering of his soul, he would see the light of life. Verse 11. How did Jesus know? Well, let me read it for you from John 10. 
The reason my father loves me is, here it is. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Other scriptures speak of God the Father raising Jesus from the dead, but there's no contradiction because... Even in this text, John 10, Jesus went on to say, This command I received from the Father. So you see, the Father can easily be credited with Jesus' resurrection from the standpoint of issuing the order to His Son to do it. But the point is that He has the authority to lay it down. Did we not hear that from the cross? Father, into Thy hands... I commit my spirit. How could Jesus take up his life again if he were dead? That's a good question. The answer is his body died, but not a spirit. In John 4, we are told by Christ that God is spirit. Simply put, Jesus didn't always have a human body. In eternity past, Before he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived with his father as a spirit being, as part of the trinity of the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. God is spirit. And as such, he had, may I say he has, the same authority as God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Mary simply provided a human body for the Son of God. And in his death, his spirit left his body just As all men's spirits leave their bodies upon death, the difference between us and God is we aren't God. Even in spirit form, we aren't God. Contrary to popular teaching, we will never be God. You know, a lot of the religions of the world, their idea of salvation is to become God. Part of the Universal being. Ain't going to happen. Never going to happen. God is one. The uniqueness of Jesus is that he was God in spirit before he was born a man. Then as a man he was God in the flesh. Then in his death he was God in spirit once more. And able to do all that God can do, including raising the dead, even if the dead is his own body. You don't know anybody like that. You don't know anybody like that. You say, well, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, when he was resurrected, wasn't his body brought forth? Yeah. So we have this unique God-man in a body. It can stand before his disciples and say to Doubting Thomas, look at the imprints in my hands. And there were hands there with nail prints. Look at the wound in my side. Put your hand in there if you want. If you Do it and believe. Stop doubting. 
And in an instant, he's gone. You don't know a body like that. But we're all destined for a body like that. Like unto his glorious body, says Paul. You say, whoa, this, these are, hmm, this is too mystical for me. Well, it's beyond our comprehension. It's before, beyond our duplication in laboratories, that's for sure. Because there is something more than natural world. Something more than material. There is spiritual. The real you. The real world controlled by God who is spirit. What is the significance of resurrection? Well, the resurrection, point three in your outline, is the satisfaction of the work of Christ. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. And satisfaction because of completing his atoning work. Those for whom he died will be justified. And Isaiah says that Jesus knows who these will be. And that that number will be many. Verse 11. So if I were to ask you this morning. What work of Jesus justifies sinners? What work did Christ do? that makes sinners just, righteous, in the sight of God. I'll bet most of you would probably answer his death, his crucifixion, and that's partly true. But listen to Paul's answer to the same question. You'll find it in Romans 4, verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, He was delivered over to death for our sins, that's true, and was raised to life, for our justification. Paul, Paul, do you know what you're saying here? Yeah, he knows. We don't. Why is this so? Because it is, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, died, in Christ, that is believing in him, are what? We don't like this word. Lost, that's what. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and following. What he is saying is this. Wonderful as it is that Jesus should stand in as the substitute for his people under the judgment of God and die for their sins. If he did not come forth from the grave, he lost death won. If death wins, you and I lose, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 Without resurrection, brethren, there is no eternal life to give. Death wins. Christ is defeated and so is every person who ever put their faith in him. You see how important resurrection is? The liberal theologians who explain away the resurrection also destroy salvation for their hearers. Smart guys that they are. <laughs> Smart in human logic and dumb with regard to spiritual truth of salvation.
The road to exaltation from God the Father's viewpoint begins in resurrection. And that is the stamp of approval upon his son's work. It is his first step of exaltation. Look at it in verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's going to have a place among the great. Same ideas contained in Philippians 2 which deals more with his humiliation. But we do have this statement. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He, be, he became obedient unto death. Yes, he did do that. He, even the death on a cross, writes Paul. Therefore, okay, what about that? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Praise to the God of the Fa- God the Father. His death, his resurrection assures Jesus a portion among the great. Because he poured out his life unto death and bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He accomplished what God sent him to do. And he is rewarded by the Father for his victories. God wins, Satan loses, death is defeated. There is salvation. No other way. You want to check check off, get your black marker out, and cross out all the resurrection passages in the Bible, and you're erasing, you are erasing the means of salvation. Now what lessons for the heart can we take from this section in Isaiah? Well, number one, when you're going through a time of suffering under the providential hand of God, There may be times of great grief, but for the faithful, there is a victory day awaiting, just as with Christ. The same God who chastens us because of our sin is the same God who rewards us for our our obedience. It's a strange thing about God that what he commands us to do, he enables us to do. And then if we're faithful to obey, he rewards us for what we should have done anyway. Too many times we dwell on the toughness of life as we experience it, the tiredness that life brings because of hard work, the lack of rest, the pain from a deteriorating body, the lack of mental acuity as age sets in, limitation in success because our skill levels just are not what they used to be. Anyone experiencing that? I are. Then, too, we wrestle with the complaints and the criticisms of the spectators along the sidelines, and we wonder why they aren't part of the solution instead of part of the problem. So discouragement, as well, plays huge roles in defeating us. Some never get off ground zero because their momentary blue slump lasts longer than a moment, and they are defeated before they try. And if this were not enough in itself, sometimes it, sometimes it appears that providence itself is running contrary to our progress. Lord, I thought you were on my side. 
Where are you? Why am I having all of this stuff in my life? We want to live for the Lord. We want to be faithful. But then, why are the kids sick on Sunday morning and keep us from attending church? Why did I get laid off at work or have such a slowdown on the job that the boss has me sweeping floors? How can I keep up my financial obligations to support my family and help the church in these times like that? These are tests of our faith. They are. We probably have more questions than answers, but we must learn from Jesus that the will of God will surely take us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we fear no evil. For God is with us. This is not a contrived consolation. No, he is really with us. And not only with us, but for us. Victory day is coming. The children of Christ will not be disappointed. We ride to glory and exaltation on the wings of his victory. And if we know this, if we know this going into the race, if we know and believe that Jesus took the abandonment of God along with the punishment of God for our sins, then his promise to never leave us or to forsake us is genuine and real. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, and none shall be eternally lost. Not one. Sometimes, the writers, not sometimes, a lot of times, the writers of scripture do nothing more than remind us of what's coming because they know we're embroiled in all that is. And what is, is not pleasant. And so they say, you know, the sufferings of this present day are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. So don't even go there. Endure the suffering. Think of Christ. Think of the victory in Christ. Think of the glory that's come. And it's not just for 70 or 80 years or if you're elderly and you can make it into your 90s. It's not just for 90 some years. It's forever. Secondly, we need to learn that though our suffering in some measure is due to association with Christ, our joy is also associated with his resurrection. Do you know the expression everlasting life is reserved for those who have repented of their sin and believed in the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus, the servant of God. It's reserved for them. The resurrection of Jesus is the practical pledge of eternal life for his brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, a resurrection applies to all of mankind which dies, saints, sinners, righteous, unrighteous, wicked as well as the righteous, believers, unbelievers, they all alike will rise from the dead at the coming of Christ. But the point I'm making is that the designation eternal life is not predicated on the wicked and the unbelieving. You will say, well, now wait a minute. Doesn't resurrection bring their bodies from the grave as well as our own? Answer, yes. 
Aren't they alive evermore, just like us? Answer, yes. Isn't that eternal life? Answer, no. So I'm confused. Well, let me read it for you. The Bible takes the position that in the world to come, life, living, is associated not simply with breathing in and breathing out, but with being in a right and godly relationship to God, the Creator, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a state of grace where we're forgiven, where we have repented of our sin. We are the objects of God's mercy. That's life in the hereafter, eternal life. You say, well, oh, okay, what is... Well, what then is said for the unbelieving, what, uh, the stubborn, the, the incorrigible, the unrepentant, the God-haters? What does the Bible say about them? Well, the Bible does use the word eternal. But the contrast is significant. It's like this, miles apart. Let me read it for you. Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus is teaching. He says of the goats, not his sheep, the goats. You know, those people that, those animals that eat everything, <laughs> including garbage. Right? Not sheep, but goats. He says of the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Not life. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. They will go into eternal punishment. Not life. But the righteous to eternal life. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. It tells us that when Christ returns. He will punish those who do not know God. And do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. So there you have it. Eternal fire, eternal punishment, everlasting destruction, but no mention of eternal life. Why? Because life begins and ends with knowing God. And for the unbelieving and the disobedient, they are children of death by their own choice. Paul told Timothy to tell the rich, To hang on to not their riches, but on to that which is life indeed. Life indeed. Thus in the revelation, all of those who have followed the rebellion of the devil and his angels will share their fate. That's what they get. Well, what, what's their fate? Let me read it. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and hell gave up the dead that were in them. That's resurrection, right? And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. To be resurrected from the dead is not eternal life if you end up in the lake of fire. It's eternal, all right. <laughs> but it's eternal punishment, as we read, not eternal life. 
I say to everybody that life begins and ends with Jesus Christ, who said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. John 11, verse 25. That is eternal. And the final question Jesus asked to Martha, sister of dead Lazarus, is the question I ask of you. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And my prayer is that your confession will be as credible as Martha's. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. John 11, verse 27. Is that your testimony this morning? Has the Son of God become important in your life? As he who stood at Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out bound. And Jesus said to the onlookers, loosen his bindings. Let him go free. And it says many of the Jews believed because of the resurrection of Lazarus. Will you believe because of the resurrection of one greater than Lazarus? If that's your testimony this morning, then you will share in the resurrection to life which Christ's victory has obtained. John words it this way, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. Yeah, we believed in Christ's cross. We believe in his open tomb. And if we are believers of that Christ, the biblical Christ, we shall enjoy the life that he gives. I would not have any here or in our internet audience be cast into the lake of fire and suffer eternal punishment. Eternal means it never ends. That's how wicked your sin. That's how much you need a perfect substitute stand in like Christ to wipe away all of that sin by paying for it, paying for it, not sweeping it under the carpet, but paying for it. So we believers, we know we're sinners. <laughs> and we know that the payment has been made. And we know we can't add to it, nor do we try. We just trust Christ to have done it all. As he said from his cross, it is finished. Lord, let us pray. Our Lord, Father, Jesus, our Savior, we pray and thank you this, this day. For your exaltation. We we're thankful that Isaiah goes on to tell us not just of all your, all your suffering, not only of your cross, not all, only of uh, the sins being laid upon you and your standing in as a guilt offering, but he, he speaks to us of you seeing your offspring and of you experiencing the light of life again. 
We're thankful that even in your teaching of your disciples, though they were dull of hearing, you told them, you told them outright that on the third day you would come forth from that grave. They should have been looking for that. They should have been anticipating that. They weren't. They were full of grief. They got the first part of the message. They didn't get the second part. But you were gracious to them. You were forgiving to them for their ignorance. And you came to them and showed them your resurrected body. And thus prove to them. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning that you appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. So a lot of witnesses saw your resurrected body. I pray, Lord, that their testimony would not fall on deaf ears this morning. Nor the words of Christ that on the third day you would rise again victorious over the grave. That's why we know you're coming again. That's why we know they'll never find and have never found the body of Christ. Even though they think they have found your tomb. It is as it was that day, three days after crucifixion. It's empty. It's empty. No bones, no remains. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you allow that to sink into our hearts. This living Christ now rules from heaven and promises to rule from earth in the future. Forgive us for our stubbornness. Forgive us for our ignorance. Forgive us for not believing. Grant us that faith and that repentance unto life for your sake, your glory, for your wonderment, and for our good. Amen.